Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening. My name is Vince, and I'm an alcoholic. One is one too many and one more is never enough. The alcoholic model. In the words of my sponsor, I'm glad to be here this evening, safe and sane and sober, because I didn't used to be, and I might be that way again someday. I, uh, I'm glad to be here this evening. There's a few of you out there that I know, but before the meeting, I had the opportunity to uh, walk around and meet some other people. And I got to tell you, I'm convinced that some of y'all should never drink alcohol again in your life. (laughs) I'm just saying. Unfortunately... I'm one of those people, because if I start drinking alcohol again, I know what's going to happen. I just don't know when, where, or how it's going to happen, but eventually it's going to rain all over my parade. That's why I continue to go to these meetings. I, uh, wow, this is pretty interesting. This is the, this is the first group of people that I've spoken to in a while where I kind of know a lot of people in the room. And it's pretty interesting. It's really nice. It's really nice for that to happen. It really is. Because there's a lot of people that I know that really don't know my story, but I know you and you know me. And uh, that's really nice. It really is. I mentioned that I'm an alcoholic. Actually, I'm what you would call a real alcoholic. And the reason I say that is because our book says that if I am a real alcoholic, I will never, no matter how hard I try, be able to drink alcohol like a normal drinker. Our book also says that we must hang together or die separately. And, unfortunately... There will be people in this room tonight who will die not sober. I could be one of those people. That's why I continue to go to these meetings. I, uh, there's several reasons I go to meetings, actually. One of the reasons I go to meetings is so that I can listen to people tell me what happens to people who don't go to meetings. Another reason I go to meetings is because I want to be here When that new person walks through that door, feeling alone, scared, afraid, confused, not knowing what the next step is going to be in life, I need to be here because people were here for me and they welcomed me here. And that's one of the reasons that I'm still here today. Another reason I go to meetings is because my sponsor hasn't told me not to. And I don't believe he ever will. But I really do believe the real reason that I go to meetings is really simple. It works. Alcoholics Anonymous works. If you're new out there, please believe that. It does work. And if you're new or if you've been around this program for a while, and it's not working for you, might I make a suggestion to you? Just do more. It's that simple. Just do more than what you've been doing. I want to thank uh, Mark for being my host. He's been a great host. He calls me up and touches bases with me, how many seats you need. and You know, you got a parking spot out front. Uh, as some of you know, I am from... Issaquah. (laughs) 
So I live right down the street. So they didn't have to fly me in. But what I wanted to ask him was, Mark, can you just fly me to Portland and back just so I, you know, feel something? But uh, he'll have to make up tonight for the for uh, uh, at the dinner for taking me out to dinner. I'm gonna try to get the most expensive thing I can get because there was no plane ride involved. I also want to thank Pixie uh, for asking me to do this two years ago, and now she's in Hawaii. I, uh, I got to tell you, there was a time in my life the only thing people asked me to do was leave. And sometimes they were rather nice about it. Sometimes they'd get two or three guys and give me my own private escort out. <laughs> that happened quite a bit. But uh, that doesn't happen anymore. And I'm grateful for that. Something that simple. I'm grateful for that. Well, actually, something did happen a couple summers ago. I got kicked out of Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> I had a food fight with, with four 10-year-olds. And I'd like you to know that I kicked their ass. And then they asked me to leave. So, you too can have the kind of sobriety I have. Norm Alpe used to say, now I say it, it means I stole it from him, but he doesn't mind. I'm not an authority or an expert on Alcoholics Anonymous, but what I am is an example, good or bad, that Alcoholics Anonymous works. And it's been working for me since November 20th of 1984. I, no, I'll clap. Thank you. I'm happy about that. I really am. And I got to tell you, so are a lot of other people. I, uh, I have two groups that I consider home groups. One is the Empire Way group in Seattle. Uh, I try not to miss that meeting. The only time I will miss that meeting is if I'm sick or I'm out of town or something like that. But other than that, I don't miss the meeting. And my other home group is the Tiger Mountains Men Stag right here in Issaquah. And uh, I got to tell you about that, that home group, though. We are located one driveway away from the Issaquah police station. One driveway. So when we invite new guys to come to the meeting, we never have to give them directions. <laughs> Not one time have we had to, oh, I know where that is. <laughs> but a little while back, I'm sponsoring this kid, 20-year-old kid. He's about a week sober, and I had been sponsoring him for, sponsoring him for about a week. And he's really hip, slick, and cool kid. So I invite him to the meeting. And uh, it's about 30 minutes before the meeting starts. And I'm sitting in the meeting, and I get a text from him. And it says, hey, bro, I'm sitting outside in my car in front of the meeting. So I'm getting ready to send him a text back and tell him, you know, well, why don't you get your ass inside? But before I could do that, he sends me another text. He says, hey, bro, it's a lot of cops out here. I got to go. <laughs> I ain't seen that dude since. <laughs> I have no idea where he is. But I hope he's, I, I, I hope he's okay. I really do. Uh, I actually want to thank Mark for reading chapter, chapter 5, too. Chapter 5. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. 
Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. I needed to hear that when I was new. That's all I heard of Chapter 5 for about a good year, my first year. That's all I heard. I heard those few lines because those few lines, I just knew that if I did what I was told, if I did what people were telling me, if I did what the winners were doing, who I believe were the winners, if I did what they did, I had a chance. I had a chance to feel better. I had a chance at a better life. And that's all I wanted. I just wanted a chance. Those few lines gave me hope for a very long time. And even when I hear that read in meetings now, and I've heard it read thousands and thousands of times, I still get hope. There's still hope for me. Just because I've been sober 30, 32 years and 11 months doesn't mean I'll be sober next week. I still need that hope. And that's what that reading does for me. It still provides that hope. I, uh, I want to tell you this joke. I'm not a jokester. I don't really joke. <laughs> yeah. There was these two little boys. And uh, one was nine and one was six. And they're in their bedroom one night. And the nine-year-old says to the six-year-old, right before they go to bed, he says, you know what? We're old enough to start cussing. And the six-year-old says, okay. So the nine-year-old says, my word is going to be hell. And your word's going to be fat ass. (laughs) And the six-year-old says, okay. So in the morning, they're in the kitchen. And mom is getting ready to cook breakfast. She's bouncing around the kitchen. And, and so she says to the nine-year-old, she says, honey, what would you like to have for breakfast this morning? And the nine-year-old starts scratching his head, and he's thinking. And he says, oh, hell, I'll have some Cheerios. <laughs> and mom is upset. She runs over and snatches him and drags him down the hallway and throws him in his room and closes the door And a six-year-old is looking at this, and he has no idea what just happened. Mom comes back in the kitchen, and she says to the six-year-old, she says, Honey, what would you like to have for breakfast this morning? And the six-year-old says, I don't know, Mom, but you can bet your fat ass I don't want no Cheerios. I'm just saying. (laughs) If you're new, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, the program of second chances. I hope that you're feeling a bit hopeless and a lot desperate because that's how I felt when I got here. And because I felt that way and the fact that I didn't have any place else to go, I followed directions. I didn't want to, but I followed directions. And I took some actions that I did not believe would work for me. But against my better judgment and my better thinking, it did. It worked. You see, this is your chance. I beg of you, please, Do not miss out on this opportunity, because it could be your last. If you come to find out that you are an alcoholic of my type, these are the options for you and I. The first one is jail or prison. The next one is somebody like you or I, We're going to live every day of our lives in pure insanity and maybe wind up in a room that has no doorknobs. And the last option is death. 
if we're lucky. If we're lucky, we'll die. And I'll tell you what my sponsor told me about sobriety. He said, Vince, there's two really dangerous days in sobriety. The first day you get sober and every day after that. (laughs) So if you knew, do not leave here tonight without a sponsor. Get a sponsor. It's important. Call your sponsor. That's important. When the sponsor says, call me, they send it for a reason. There's some basics to having a sponsor, and I'm not going to go over all of them, but uh, it's to learn how to tell the truth. It's to be responsible. Uh, It's to learn how to communicate. It's to learn how to follow directions. There's a lot of basics why you need a sponsor. But here's the real reason that not only you need a sponsor, but me too, but especially for a new person. Because one day, the shit's going to hit the fan. And if you haven't talked to your sponsor in days, weeks, or months, it's going to be very hard for you to pick up the telephone. And you probably won't pick it up. And now you're risking your life just because you haven't made those phone calls. And on the other end of that, if you have been calling your sponsor on a consistent basis or every day like they're telling you, when the shit hits the fan, it'll be really easy for you to pick up the telephone because you've been doing it. That's why you need a sponsor to save your ass. So I urge you, if you're new, uh, get a sponsor. Don't leave here tonight without a sponsor. There's a lot of people in here, I think. <laughs> Some of y'all that know me got that joke. <laughs> oh, I hear Randy. <laughs> over there somewhere. Uh, get a sponsor, because you're, you're definitely at a turning point in your life. I want to tell you about my favorite turning point in the book. Uh, those of you, the new people, <laughs> the book is that big blue Alcoholics Anonymous book. That's the book that we refer to. It goes something like this. He wanted so very much for someone to talk to. But whom? At one end of the lobby, in a glass case, was a telephone directory of churches. At the other end of the lobby was an attractive bar where he could hear the laughter and the gaiety going on inside. Fear gripped him. He was on thin ice. With a shiver, he turned and he walked toward the telephone directories. He would phone a clergyman. His sanity returned. And he thanked God. That was Bill Wilson in 1935, six months sober, standing in a hotel lobby after being on a failed business trip. He had no meetings to go to. He had no book to read. He had no steps to work. He had no sponsor to call. He had no AA friends. I'm glad he made that call. You and I are here tonight because he made that call. And I'm grateful for that. Six years ago, I had a turning point in my life. Probably the biggest one of my sobriety. I was 26 and a half years sober. I was a Major League Baseball scout for the St. Louis Cardinals. So I needed my eyesight to do my job. Long story short, I had to have some surgery on my eyes. And the surgery did not go exactly my way. And I basically became blind. What I see are images of people. I can't make you out. I don't know who you are. I can't tell if you're a man or woman sitting in the front row. I just know you're a person. And uh, I remember going to that doctor's office and sitting in that, my eye surgeon's chair. 
And he said some words that I wouldn't wish upon anybody. He said, Vince, there's nothing we can do. And I was blown away. My whole life turned upside down at that moment. And I cried. I just cried like a baby. Because I had never experienced anything like that. I never thought anything like that would ever happen to me. But I got to tell you something. Even in that moment of distress, I never asked myself one time, why me? It didn't matter. Why me? Because it was happening. I learned that here. One of my first thoughts was, I need some answers. I need to know how to deal with this. I need to know how to live like this. I need to know how to go on. I need to know how to feel. I needed to go to meetings. I knew my answers were here. Sure, the doctors had answers, but they had all the same answers. Their answers were, we can't help you. And pretty much you're on your own. But I got my answers here because there were people here that, that, that had experienced that. There were people here that who had gone through stuff like that. There were people here that knew how that felt. So I will ever, forever be grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous. You guys save my life all the time. All the time you save my life. And not one time did I blame God. See, the God of my understanding, my God, wouldn't do anything like that. I came to terms with, I have to live life on life's terms. That's what I came to terms with. I got to live life. I got to go on. Luckily, I had a, a, a loving and caring wife. She takes good care of me. She looks out for me. So I'm grateful for that. And then the people in these rooms, man, you've done a fantastic job. And I appreciate it. I, uh, so that's kind of my turning point story. That's probably the most serious thing that's ever happened to me in sobriety, losing my vision. But it's okay. I still do things. Still kind of do what I want to do. The only thing I can't do is drive a car, and I tried that the first month. <laughs> I really did. And I drove it into a ditch. And I realized... Okay, Vince, that wasn't a really good idea. Let's not do that one again. And I never have, because I realized I could kill somebody, not just myself. I could kill somebody else. I grew up in a really, really unusual area. You may have heard of it. South Central Los Angeles. I did not know anybody in my neighborhood that did not drink, use drugs, commit crimes, or have some sort of violent tendencies. Although, I don't want to make South Central sound that bad, there were people in my neighborhood that didn't do those things. There were good people in my neighborhood. I just didn't know them. Uh, I didn't make it my business to know them. I knew the other type people. And then, there was my family. My family... Everybody in my family should be in these rooms. Everybody. But only two of us made it. Me, myself, and one of my cousins. And one of my cousins, he just doesn't go to meetings. But he's sober, but he doesn't go to meetings. But anyway, my family would get together on weekends. Uh, not every weekend, but maybe once or twice a month, they'd get together and... The alcohol would be flowing. Uh, they would be playing cards and dominoes and dancing and singing and, and uh, just having a great-ass time. And the alcohol would just be flowing. Then about two and a half, three hours later, all hell would break loose. It would just get crazy. People would start yelling, screaming, throwing things, wanting to fight each other, getting belligerent, uh, uh, furniture breaking, throwing punches. And we weren't even Irish. 
And then the police would get called. Somebody would get handcuffed, always, and go to jail. And then the oddest thing would happen. They would all hug each other at the end and say, we can't wait to do this again next week. (laughs) I didn't get that, but I didn't have to. But here's the thing that got me the most. My mother and father drank. I believe my mother to be alcoholic. I believe my dad to be a heavy drinker. That's just my opinion. But my mother and father would drink and throw each other off the walls, bounce each other off the floor, yell, scream, cuss, break furniture. Uh, my mother would pull weapons on my, on my dad. And see, I was the only child. I didn't have any brothers and sisters. I'd go in my room, close the door, pull the covers over my head, and cry myself to sleep. And I would hope that I would wake up in the morning and nobody would be lying in a puddle of blood. That was my biggest fear. That happened to me over and over and over. I would get up in the morning, walk through the house, and if it was if there was nobody laying in blood or nobody dead, because I knew some I knew eventually somebody would die. And fortunately enough, that never happened. But see, I would get ready to go to school. And I'm like 8 to 14 years old. I would get ready to go to school. And I lived in one of those neighborhoods where kids would gather on the way to school. By the time they got to my house, it would be about eight of us. I would walk out of my front door. I couldn't tell anybody anything that was going on in my house. I didn't even know how to feel. And it was, that was when I started keeping secrets. And once I started keeping secrets in that way, it was easy to keep secrets in other ways. That's when I learned to keep secrets. I would go to school and I'd daydream. I'd look out the window and teachers were always, Vince, are you paying attention? Yeah, I think. But that's when all these feelings started to really happen for me. I didn't know how to feel. So because I didn't know how to feel, I taught myself not to care. I didn't care. I didn't care about people. I didn't care about most things. I just didn't care. I just turned off. And the other thing I did, I tried not to feel. But that was impossible. That was my problem, was that I felt And see, later, alcohol came along, and it handled that situation. See, because I just, I mean, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I never liked the, the taste of anything I ever drank. I liked what it did. I never liked the taste of anything. You see, I'm not a drinker. I'm a feeler. Because I felt certain ways, that's what I did. I drank. Drinking worked. It worked. So I found, I found baseball. Baseball did it for me. Baseball did what alcohol would do for me later. See, when I was playing baseball, baseball kept me in one piece. Baseball made me feel whole. It made me feel part of something. It made me feel good about myself. It made me feel okay. I could go out on that field and I could play ball and I could just get invisible. I could disappear, but in a good way. Everything was fine when I was on the field playing ball. But the game would end and I'd have to go back to this other life, which I didn't know how to handle. I did the best I could. I... uh I played all through high school, baseball all through high school, and I wound up getting a scholarship to go to Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. South Central kid going to Malibu, California. (laughs) You can imagine how that turned out. (laughs) But anyway, at 16, I'm in one of my friends, I'm in his den, and uh, 
Over on the table in his room were some Dixie cups and a bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. That was my first drink. Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. Kool-Aid with a kick. <laughs> and I got to tell you something. When I drank that alcohol that night, I felt free. Free. And I felt the happiest I had ever been in my life. I was just happy. I heard a lady describe what her first drink was like. And I felt the exact same thing. It was like I had been holding my breath my whole life. And I finally exhaled. That's what it was like. Alcohol was the best thing that ever happened to me. It made me feel better than anything I had ever done up to that point. And another thing it did for me, it changed the way that I saw things. Whether it was good or bad, it changed. And I was like, I, I, I could do things directly. I could think. I, my perception was totally changed. And it was okay, whether it was right or wrong. It was okay. But the one thing that it did for me, it took away all my fears. I was no longer afraid. I wasn't afraid anymore. I could do what I wanted to do, be what I wanted to be, say what I wanted to say. I, I was free. And that's what it did for me. And see, I knew from that, the moment that I drank that night, this is going to be a problem because anything that makes me feel this good in this way, I got to do it again. I knew I had to do it again because of the way it made me feel. I had never felt that good in my life. So I continued. I, we drink on weekends and parties and stuff like that, you know, in high school. And then I went to college and my drinking took off in college. A lot of beer which I don't even consider drinking, actually, beer. But it, it took off. We drank beer probably every night after games, after practices, and things like that. I wound up getting suspended from college. I'd never been suspended from school in my life. And I wait till I get to college to get suspended. I got suspended for drinking alcohol and sneaking girls up into my dorm. And their solution for that was suspend me for a week, and then when I come back, kick me off campus. But when they kicked me off campus, they got me an apartment in Malibu on the beach. <laughs> so I push the envelope. I'm like two miles from school, right? And I tell them, I say, hey, listen, I don't have a car. How am I going to get to school? So they got me a car. So that bad behavior was just reiterated. All I got to do is drink and do some wrong things and... They're going to take care of me because of my skills, because of my baseball skills. So college was college. I, you know, it was just, I had fun in college. I really did. Uh, I got into a lot of stuff, though. I wound up signing a uh, professional baseball contract out of college with the Minnesota Twins. Uh, a couple years later, uh, I signed with the Milwaukee Brewers. About a year and a half after that, I signed with the Oakland Athletics. Nobody would keep me around a long time, although I had a lot of talent. I really did. I played with three teams. Usually when they send you, when they release you from one team, uh, you're kind of done. And what would happen is I'd be playing games and I played center field and I'd be in, standing out there in center field and I'd be thinking to myself, what am I going to do after the game? I don't even care about this game. It's better than working a job from nine to five, but I really don't care. I had, I had lost all passion 
for playing baseball, but it was something that I could do and it was something that I could get away with. I, uh, I'd just be sitting out there, you know, the first team, management would call me into the office, coaches, uh, uh, general managers, they'd call me into the office and they'd always say, what is wrong with you? We don't know who you are from night to night. One night you're great, and the next night you just, who are you? And they say, what's wrong with you? Which people have been asking me that my whole life. What's wrong with you? And when I give them this answer, they think I'm lying to them. There's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. See, this is the perception of who I am. I've been living this way my whole life. This is what I do. I'm comfortable with this. So therefore, there's nothing wrong with me. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, can't you see that? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. And people would always tell me, no, you're not fine. You know, but, and, and it went on like that. Uh, one team would release me, and, you know, a few months later, another team would sign me. That team would release me, and a few months later, another team would sign me. They were always willing to take a chance on me. I was kind of a likable guy, uh, until I wasn't. <laughs> but, like I said, I'd be standing out in center field, and I'd be thinking to myself, Okay, I hope this game hurry up and it's over with so I can go shower, run out of the locker room. I like to go to clubs. I like to go to bars. Uh, I, I like the nightlife. I like, I like the lights, the action, the people. Uh, uh, I loved it. I, I never drank alone. I never drank by myself. I always drink in atmospheres like that because I loved it. I can remember sitting at the bar, and my favorite thing was I loved discos. <laughs> I was a disco guy. Best thing that ever happened to me was John Travolta. <laughs> but I was a disco guy. I can remember leaving that ballpark and going straight to the disco and sitting at the bar and ordering shots of whiskey and, you know, looking at myself in the mirror and behind the bar and then turning around on the bar stool and looking out into my playground out there. That was my playground. You know, it was alive. The loud music, the dancing, the fancy clothes, that big ball spinning in the center of the room. You know, that big silver ball. I mean, if you liked that, if you partied that way like I did, I got two words for you. Village people. <laughs> I, that's what I did. So, my baseball career ends. As you can probably tell. Yeah, my baseball career ends and... I'm starting to drink more. I'm drinking more and more and more. And uh, I'm committing crimes. I'm robbing people. I'm, I'm just doing things that I should not be doing because of my drinking. And I'm just going downhill really quick. And so finally, I uh, commit the major crime. I rob a golf course. Yeah, a golf course. And uh, I rob this golf course, and I go on the run, and I'm living in this, in two or three motels, night after night. I got about 1500 bucks from it, and now I got a felony out for my, uh, 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 felony warrant for my arrest, and, and I'm dodging the police by going to these motels. And, you know, just a year and a half ago, I was playing professional baseball and so it's the last day I'm out of money I got to check out of this motel so I pull out of this motel and I pull up to the sidewalk and I'm in my truck and I sit there 
thinking to myself, my God, what have you done? Your life is destroyed. You're looking at years in prison. I had never felt this way in my life. I was desperate. I didn't know how to feel. Uh, I was scared to live and afraid to die. I had no friendly direction to go in. It was just, it was awful. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I got a nine millimeter in my glove compartment. And I'm hoping that the police don't pull me over. And I sit there, it's a November day, and it's misty outside. My windshield wipers are going back and forth. I remember that day like it was yesterday. And I felt so bad. And I remember hitting the steering wheel. And I said, God, please help me. Please help me. And, and I don't remember the rest of that day. The rest of that day was a blackout. And I wound up in front of my grandmother's house. And she uh, called me into the house. And she told me, she says, boy, you need some help. And I says, I know. <clears throat> so I looked in the telephone book and I found this treatment center. Sentinella Hospital in Inglewood, California. And uh, we went to the, she took me to the bank. She took herself to the bank the next day. And she drew out $16,000 in cash. And my grandmother is a straight-laced, Southern Baptist, Texas woman, five foot one, full of fire, never smoked, did drugs, drank, never cussed. Uh, she was an upstanding citizen. And she was my hero. She really was. So we get to this treatment center, and she lays out this cash. And so I'm coming out of the office, and so is she. She's going in one direction to the exit, and I'm going inside the treatment center. And I just happened to turn around and look at her, and she just happened to turn around and look at me. And this sweet little lady, she looks at me, and she says, Vincent, this shit better work. <laughs> Scared the hell out of me. But here I am, 32 years and 11 months later. So I'm in this treatment center, and they let me sleep for a day, because as you know, we need it. So I get, they take, they put me in this, this group thing, this group therapy thing. And so these people are going around the room. It's like 20 people and they're sharing stuff. They're talking about stuff that I'm thinking, man, you should not be talking about that stuff. You got to let that go. <laughs> Things they do, did and said and ways they want to change and all this kind of stuff. And they get to this one guy and this one guy, he didn't give them the full truth. And they just jumped all over his ass. And I said, whoa, now I see what they do. <laughs> when you don't tell the truth. So I figured when they get to me, I'm just going to make up a whole bunch of stuff. Just make it really good. So they get to me. And I start to tell them. I said, you know, I was a really crappy husband. I used to cheat on my wife. I abandoned my kids. I don't have any family relationships. I've lost jobs. I've stole. I've robbed people. People don't want to be around me. People hate me. And I stopped and I thought for a second, this shit is true. <laughs> and so I went to my room. And I cried because it was the first time I had exposed myself to myself. And I get out of that treatment center. And now I'm living with my grandmother uh, and she's taking total care of me. I got a room. I got a television. She's cooking for me. She's giving me money for gas in my truck. Uh, she's buying me clothes. Uh, I mean, she's taking care of me. Everything, all my wants and needs are right there. And so. Uh. She says, I was out two days. She says, Vincent, 
you got to go back to that place you robbed and make some amends. I said, wait a minute. You don't even know what you know. You have no idea what you just said there. And she says, no, you got to do it. Sorry. And I said, well, I want money. So we went back to the bank, got $1,500, and we go back to this golf course. And I'm thinking, I'm going to jail. So I get out of her car, and I call her Big Mama. I says, Big Mama, I says, I really have to do this? And she says, yeah. She says, you go in there and you take them that cash. I says, wonder if I go in there and I go to jail. She says, well, I'm going home. And I went in there, I found the manager, and I just started telling him my story. And I told him what I was going to, what I was trying to do with my life. And I did, I was in a treatment center and this and that. And he called off the warrant. And he told me, don't ever come back in that place of business or any other places of business that they own. Never. And I walked back out to the car and and that's the way it was. I was free. And so one of my good friends, he comes over to my grandmother's house and he says, Vince, he says, uh, you ever heard of the Pacific Group? And I says, no, I never heard of the Pacific Group. He says, you ever heard of a guy named Clancy? I said, nope, never heard of a guy named Clancy. He says, I'm going to come by on Wednesday and I'm going to take you to the meeting to meet Clancy. So we get to the meeting, and literally, when I walk through the doors, there's a thousand people in there. And this is a regular meeting, weekly meeting. There's a thousand people, which didn't bother me. And this guy walks up to me, silver-haired white guy with this big chipmunk smile. He looked like a used car salesman, had on a nice, really nice suit, and he's just smiling away. And I wonder, what the hell is he smiling at? And he says, you knew. He says, what's your name? I said, Vince. I said, what's yours? He says, my name's Jim Bean. I said, no. I said, no. You're kidding me, right? He says, nope, my name's Jim Bean. That was the first guy I met in my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. <laughs> Jim Bean. So I figured I'm in the right place. So I walk around a little bit. And I meet Clancy. And I got to tell you something. I talked to him for about four minutes. And in that four minutes time, I knew that this guy knew more about me than I knew about myself. I could feel that from him. And I knew that this was a guy that I could be honest with and truthful with. And I asked him to be my sponsor in that four minutes. And he says, kid, call me tomorrow at 11 o'clock. And I called him the next day at 11 o'clock. But he did something that night that I still try to do with other guys. He looked at me right in my eye, and he says, kid, and he slapped me on my shoulder. He says, you're going to be okay. I believed him. I don't know why, but I believed him. I just felt something. And then he was nice and he was kind to me for about seven days. <laughs> and then the next week, God damn it, do your inventory. God damn it, won't you act better? God damn it, get up out of that chair and shake hands. God damn it, what's wrong with you? God damn it, get a commitment. And you know, I'm starting to think, you know what? I'm getting a little tired of this crap. I'm starting to think my name's God damn it. And then, so I'm like two months sober. And uh, he says, Vince, meet me at my house. I'm going, we're going to a meeting tonight. I'm speaking. Meet me at seven o'clock. I said, okay. So I get there and it's 715. And he's still sitting. He's sitting out in his car. The engine's running. He rolls down the window. And I got on some nice clothes, the nicest clothes I had in a while. I'm all dressed up, ready to go. 
He rolls down the window. He says, Vince, what time is it? I said, it's about 7.15. He says, what time are you supposed to be here? I said, 7 o'clock. He rolls back up the window on the passenger side, and he drove off. (laughs) And he left me standing there. And I was upset. But here's the thing I was upset at. I was not upset at him. I wasn't upset at him. I was upset at myself. See, I had no reason for being late. It's just how I had been living my life. I've been living my life in that way. And I must have sat down in front of his house. He had this little, this little uh, uh, fence, a brick fence. And I sat there for about 30 minutes just thinking, man, I got to change some things. I really have to change some things. And then this other time, I call him up, and I says, hey, Clancy, uh, I'm at home today. I decided not to go to work and take a sick day. He says, Vince, are you sick? I said, no. He hung up. <laughs> he, just hung, he hung up the phone. Another lesson learned. But the le- you know what the lesson I learned from that? Just don't tell him next time. <laughs> I'm at a meeting. And I'm BSing him. And it's about 30 seconds. I'm BSing him for about 30 seconds. And when you're talking to a new person, 30 seconds is just time you're never going to get back in your life. You know? And so he says, Vince, hold on. He reaches in his pocket and he pulls out all this change. And he hands me a dime. And I said, what's this for? He says, go call somebody who cares. And he walks off. See, those are the lessons that I needed. See, if I didn't like that stuff, I could have just left. I could have left. But I was okay with it. Because I knew all along I needed to change. I knew that things about me weren't right. So I'm going to meetings, and I'm still trying to decide whether or not I'm going to be a member here or a guest. So I'm looking at you people, and I finally figured out why I wanted to stay. I didn't want to get my ex-wife back. Hell no, I didn't want to get my ex-wife back. I wasn't interested in developing a relationship with my kids. I wasn't interested in getting a better job. I wasn't interested in having a lot of money in my pocket, and I damn sure wasn't interested in making friends. What I saw, what the connection with me was, I was feeling better. I was feeling better. And I was feeling better because there were people here that were of my type. And that was the connection. I identified with you. Finally, some people that I could identify with. And I was feeling better because they were making me do things that I did not want to do. So I was, uh, that's why I stayed. I stayed because I felt better. And those other things that I mentioned, uh, they happened eventually. They happened eventually. There was three guys, three speakers that I heard when I was new. One guy was named John V. He was a Mi'kmaq Indian from Massachusetts. He said something one night in one of his talks that I understood. And it just, uh, it hit home with me. And then there was another guy. Uh, that was a connection. And then there was Johnny Harris from the Belfar Big Book meeting. He said a couple things one night in one of his talks. He said, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. Now, I didn't exactly like what I was getting in AA at the time, and I knew I had to change. And he also said, uh, God made the sun to shine upon the just as well as the unjust. See, I looked at myself as being the unjust. I didn't measure up. I was going to hell. And I knew that. But when he said that that night, I realized that God did care about me as much as he did anybody else. And it gave me some hope. 
And then one night I went to him. Uh, 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 my sponsor was speaking again, and he talked about alcoholism. And he said, you know what? I can cure. I can. I can. If you think your problem is alcohol, I cure your problem in five seconds. Stop drinking. And your life will get better. Everything will turn out just peachy king. You'll be fine. Your work will get better. Family life will get better. You'll be happy. Everything will be fine. He said, but if you suffer, suffer from alcoholism, he says, stopping drink, drinking is going to be so painful that eventually you're going to have to drink to take care of the pain. And when he said that, I knew that night I was an alcoholic. Because there were times when I stopped drinking, but I always had to drink again because of the pain. So that clarified it for me. And I knew what I was that night. So I'm going to meetings and I'm doing things. I got commitments. Uh, I'm setting up. I'm cleaning up. I'm mopping floors. Uh, I'm picking up people. I'm, how much time do I have here? Five minutes? Okay. That ain't enough time, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> And so I'm, I'm, I'm doing things. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. And uh, I'm feeling better. That's all I ever wanted to do. I wanted to feel better. And then I got these guys. Vince, we'll pick you up at 730 for the meeting. Uh, why? I got a car. We'll pick you up at 730 for the meeting. Vince, we're going to coffee afterwards. You ride with us. Vince, we got a birthday party to go to on Sunday. Somebody will come by and pick you up. Who's this somebody? Don't worry about it. Just stand outside and wait. <laughs> but the last thing was, Vince, I'll pick you up at 5 a.m. on Saturday. <laughs> what for? Well, I signed you up to go camping this weekend. <laughs> really? I just threw up my hands and I, I gave up at that point. I was like, these people are really going to hold me captive. <laughs> so I did those things. I, uh, I tell you something. There's three steps out of the 12. The first one, I already knew my life was unmanageable. I got that. I understood that. That was not an issue. I understood that. But the first part of that step, it doesn't say that I'm an alcoholic, but it says that I have a problem with alcohol. And now you're asking me to stop drinking. You're asking me to do the one thing in my life that works. That's the only thing that works for me. And you're telling me to stop doing that and replace it with Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't get that at all. I had a tough time with that. Not a long, tough time, but I, have a, I had a tough time accepting that until this deal started to work. But I, I, th that was tough for me. And then when I did my uh, fifth step, I did my fifth step on a dark highway driving from Santa Monica to Oxnard, which takes about an hour. I did it in the passenger seat with a flashlight while my sponsor was driving. And I did my inventory, and on the way back, we stopped and got some ice cream and drove back, and we talked. And I realized what that, what that did for me, it cleared my mind. That's what it did for me, because I thought there were things that I would never, ever talk about. It cleared my mind. So another thing it did for me, I knew that I was with a man that I could trust with my life. I could tell him anything, and he wouldn't judge me. But I could trust him totally. And then there were the promises. See, it said, the promises say that I'll be happy. That has happened. Promises said that I'll be free. I'll be able to think better, make better decisions. That stuff has happened, but I still need a sponsor because there's times when I get confused myself. 
I, uh, I had a problem with God. I lost faith in God. When my mother and father were fighting and trying to kill each other, I got on my knees and I said a prayer. I was 10 years old. God didn't answer my prayer. So I lost all faith in God until about four years in this program. And I'm in Bakersfield at a, at a convention, and I run into God. This guy was speaking, and I just started crying profusely. I couldn't stop. He was the closing speaker. He was the Sunday speaker, the spiritual speaker, and I couldn't stop. It was a spiritual awakening that I was having. I believe that for myself. I was, I, I, I can't even describe what it was like. I was free. I had no bad thoughts. Uh, I was just there. I was at total peace. And I've been trying to find that ever since. I get pieces of that throughout time. I'll get a piece of that and a piece and a piece. But I never got it all together since that day. But it's like this program works. You know, I don't believe that God, I believe that God kept me alive long enough to get here. And he helps to keep me here. He helps to keep me here. But what he did, he gave me meetings to go to. He gave me a book to read. He gave me steps to work. He gave me a sponsor to work with. And he gave me you people. I got to use that. Because if I don't use it, uh, I don't believe that God will just keep saying, stay sober, stay sober, stay sober. He gave me those tools. I got to use those tools. And I got to keep passing that on to other people. That's what I believe. You know, I saw this saying, it says, my dear child, I'm glad to help you with all your problems and I'm working on them if you'll just stay out of the way. Sign God. <laughs> you know, I know that God will give me what I need when he thinks I need it and when he thinks I can handle it. Sometimes I think I have too much on my plate. But I don't. Because God seems to think that I can handle that stuff. I, uh, I, I want to end with this story. And some of you have probably heard this story. There's this little boy. He's on the beach. And all these sea stars have washed up on the shore. There's thousands of them. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them on the shore. And this kid, this little boy, is walking down the shore, down the sand. And every now and then, he'll reach down and he'll pick up one and throw it into the ocean. And so this man is following him. And this man says to the kid, kid, don't you know that there's thousands and thousands of these sea stars out here? And you can't possibly make a difference. So the little boy reaches down. He picks up a sea star, throws it into the ocean. He says, I did for that one. You people are that little boy. And I'm that sea star. And I will be forever grateful for what you have done for me. You saved my life. Every now and then I'll be sitting in a meeting. And I'll drift off. And I'll think to myself, man, you lucky son of a gun. You came this close to missing it all. This close. And I really will end with this. I'm still in the page for my sponsor. As you all know, the holidays are coming up. If you're new, trust me, it's just another day. The day after Thanksgiving is just as important. The day after Christmas is just as important. The day after New Year's Eve is just as important. So I'd like to wish you a happy February 8th.
a very merry June 10th and a most joyous November 12th. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.